With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Staten Island. Krispy Kreme is opening its first local shop. Join me, Crystal Rosas, for the grand opening September 20th, along with Z100 and the Krispy Kreme family at the new Krispy Kreme shop. 2643 Richmond Avenue at Staten Island Mall.
Welcome back to the show, Lizzie Borden. Give him the axe. It is the 25th of September. I have to apologize right off the bat. I've been sick the last couple of days. The weather here in New York, we went from 80 degrees one day down to the low 50s, and it was cold and damp, and today it's raining, and it just got into my chest. I mean, I can't sound any worse than I do when I'm healthy, but I do apologize. Uh, we got a great show for everybody today. We had an amazing month of September. It's our anniversary month every September, and we had a great anniversary show last week with Jeff Mantis Dunn from Venom, and tonight Rob Thorne from Sacred Oath is going to wrap up the month of September, as long as, as well as Robbie Thomas Walsh from Perpendicular. We'll be talking both of them tonight. Rob in the second half of the show, and Robbie in the first half. Right there, given the axe by Lizzie Borden. <clears throat> We've had Lizzie on the show a couple of times, and one thing I love about Lizzie is every time he comes to New York for anything, he does a lot of in-person interviews. And I love doing in-person interviews because I just feel like they're more fun because it's like, you know, it's like kind of hanging out with your friend and talking and bullshitting, you know. And when I do interviews on the end, I get a lot of bands that come on for the first time. They're like, you know, do you want to send me a list of questions or stuff for more to talk about? I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to talk about. I don't write any questions. I don't prepare anything. You know, it's just like two friends talking about music. And, you know, I go by all the things I remember about the bands that I'm fans with. And if it's a newer band that I'm doing because maybe a press person or a record label asked me to interview them, I'll look up a little stuff on that band beforehand. But most of the bands from the 80s that I know or familiar with, I just kind of wing it. You know, that's why I think everything's so spontaneous around here and I enjoy it. But Lizzie's always a fun interview. And I remember the last time we spoke about six years ago, uh, he was in a, in a hotel in Midtown Manhattan on top of uh, where David Letterman used to film The Late Show. And it was the middle of the winter, so it, it's like pitch black here in New York at like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. He's in a small, dingy room. The lights are pretty much all out except for one little tiny lamp in the corner like a 2-watt light bulb in it. He's wearing sunglasses, sitting in a chair in the corner. It was like a scene out of The Godfather. I didn't know if I was supposed to kiss his ring or bat him or whatever, but you know, it was the weirdest thing in the world. But Lizzie's a really great guy, and I love talking to him, and it was all for fun, but we got to talk to him and get him back on here again real soon. All right, we're going to get to, we got a couple of new things to get to tonight. We're going to do some new leather, new razor, and sadly, we lost another great one this week. Gordon Kirchner, the pile driver, passed away on the other day. He, you know, he's been fighting cancer for some time now, and I know it was like a week or so ago, he was posting that, you know, he just finished his chemo, and he was hoping to get over the sickness of it, and within that week, he was gone. 60 years old. Gordon was a great guy. We had him on the show quite a few times. A real character. I mean, he was a larger-than-life character on stage, but nothing really like that in real life. He was just a fun guy, a good guy, really good people. And, you know, Kurt Phillips from Witch Killer emailed me the other day saying, Mike, can you do a little tribute to him? And, Kurt, you know I'm going to do that because we do that for everybody that passes away that was involved in the music business. So how about we do a little triple shot of stuff that was involved in Gord? We'll do some Power Driver, the band Convict, which was like more like a studio project to him and one other guy. It was a pretty cool record. And then we'll do something with Dogs With Jobs and maybe we'll wrap up something from the Exalted Power Driver towards the end of the show, if that sounds good to everybody. Then we'll get to an interview with Robbie right after this. So maybe we'll do another little quick set of music. We'll see how that goes. And then we'll talk to Rob Thorne from Sacred Oath right after that. So let me see what I can get on here from uh, the Padre. How about we do Sodomize the Dead? (laughs) 
Right, a little tribute to Gord over there. He was a really great guy. Gave you a little bit of everything he's done. I mean, I love that. Before we did this, that was Dogs with Jobs, the song Dogs with Jobs. Before that, we did Convict. That was off the record, Go Ahead, Make My Day from 85. That was completely different than Dogs with Jobs and the Exalted Pile Driver or Pile Driver. It was more traditional, you know, hard rock power metal record, and it was such a solid album. Even though it was like a studio project, I don't think they ever did anything else with it besides that. I think Conrad Taylor was the guy who played all the instruments on the record. And Gord did the singing. But if you could find it somewhere, I mean, I'm sure on YouTube. I mean, I don't really go to YouTube and use it a lot, but I'm sure you could probably find it on there somewhere. It was a, a really solid record. Go ahead and make my day. All right, we're going to get to the interview in about two minutes. So, uh, how about we do, uh, uh, I don't know what we can do. Uh, you know what? Let's do some brand new leather. We got new leather. She's coming up with a new record this November. We'll have leather back on the show. She's always a fun person to talk to. This is We Take Back Control.
Killer, Beg for Mercy. All right, we're going to talk to Robbie Thomas Walsh from Perpendicular. Let's get on a song off that brand new record. Here's the Nothing Box.
tell you, I, I'm excited about this brand new record. I mean, when you think about the story of this band, I mean, it, it's sort of like a rock star story in a way. You know, if you go, I mean, how does it been doing covers of Deep Purple become an original outfit with a member of Deep Purple in it? Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, you know, that, I don't want to sound cliche or cringy, but it is like that. It, it, but I tell you what, it was a lot of fucking work, Mike. A lot of work and a lot of yeah. kids in the you know, you just have to get, I'll say to any kid, if you want it, it's there for you, no matter what you're after, as long as it's not completely alien stuff, you know, I mean, you, you just got to, you just got to keep going. I mean, I don't know many setbacks we have, you just have to keep getting up every time you're knocked down, get up and keep going. But it wasn't planned, actually, that I would play with Ian Pace. I mean, I mean, when growing up, I was a drummer when I started first, so... um. He was one of my favorite drummers, as Cozy Powell and John Bonham, and the, these great drummers. And, you know, I had the Purple Records. I got influenced in my late teens with Purple and stuff like that. Mid-teens, late teens. And uh, if somebody had said to me back then, yeah, you're going to be touring with Ian Pace, and I would say, I would have, yeah, I would have had them committed to a madhouse. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it's just, it's still surreal. You know, some people come in and they're not deep Purple fans. You know, and they they take it all very complacent and stuff. But I remind myself, you know, how big of a of an artist he is. You know, and uh, we became great pals. The, the 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 moment we met each other, it was a bit stressy the first night because everything was very rushed, and you know, we didn't rehearse together. We still didn't. <laughs> and uh, we just became good buddies. You know, we liked the same thing. You know, we we shared the same interests in 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 football, food, beer. God knows what humor, jokes, you name it, you know. So we, we it's rare we differ on things, you know. And uh, yeah, it is a, a fairy tale story. It is. I, I'm trying to make a book at the moment. I'm trying to write down diaries. And I was just saying about my my memory. You know, you just when you do so many things and so many tours, uh, you just try to put it all into perspective. You know, you try to write stuff down, and then you think you're doing great, and then oh shit, I forgot about that. You know. And then yeah. you, you got to go back. So that's where I need an editor. So I, at the moment, I'm just talking to a couple of editors because I've got to, <laughs> got to do a book on this. Not not only just to tell about how great it is to, to play with Ian and with Perpendicular, but to inspire young kids that just maybe don't know or haven't just got that little extra, need that extra advice and push to just keep going you know because so many people just throw their tools down at the for at the first they, they want everything handed to them on the silver platter you know it doesn't work like that man you know, well that's this generation i mean people don't oh, no. realize you've put in 15 years or more just into this band alone never mind in music in general and it doesn't happen overnight i mean you know it's it's rare for it to ever yeah. be that way and you do got to pay your dues and sometimes it works out sometimes it does that's just the roll of the dice with the music business but you know something, Mike, I'll, I'll, even go be, I'll even go beyond 14, 15 years, whatever it is in Perpendicular. I think when I was at school, because, I, you know, when I figured out after a period of time that, you know, I'm not interested in history and shit like that. So I used to listen to a lot of the lyrics from Purple, you know, on my headphones when I was going to school. And that was really my that was my schooling, actually, when I was learning them songs walking to school. You know, I was learning the lyrics even back then. And then so it's not really just the 15 years. It's it's all the stuff that happened before then that actually just fell into place, you know. And uh, it's strange that way because, you know, then I started to play in amateur bands. So collectively, all the experience that I had uh, is 
where I got where I am today. Every I couldn't have I couldn't be here today, you know, uh, if it wasn't for all that little groundwork stuff, little tiny things, the small things that people overlook sometimes, you know, and they're they're important. That's very true. You know, for people that don't know the band aren't familiar with the band yet, and they should be. I mean, you know, great homage to Deep Purple, but Perpendicular is not Deep Purple at all. I no. mean, you know, you know, you got your roots in their style of music, but it's a completely different beast altogether. People should realize that before they give it a listen and know that you guys stand on your own merit. Well, we do, yeah, but it's it's tough, especially in Germany, because journalists will just put us down as a the dreaded cover band or the dreaded tribute band, and there's many of them, and with no disrespect at all, they. They play in one area. They don't. They're not internationally known, kind of thing. And then you know, and then that's fine. That's that's if that's what they want to do. If they want to dress up like purple and act like purple, but we, you know, we put a stamp down that nobody's going to copy anybody. Um, the reason why we started to do the deep purple thing was Mike. Back then, I had a little band called Dakota, and we had a couple of interviews with record companies. One of them was Virgin, and they said it was very very good, but. And they were going to do something, but then they signed a rap act instead of us. So we got shoveled out, kind of ousted. And uh, we realized that we were playing in clubs with, what, 10, 15 people. And we just couldn't make ends meet without having two or three jobs or whatever, you know. And it wasn't manageable. So we had to say, look, we have to be clever here. What are we going to do? You know, we just, you know, well, why don't we do the tribute thing? You know, that's a step up from the cover thing, you know, where you're not just playing for weddings and stuff like that. And for for quick cash, if you know what I'm saying, I said I th- everybody. I think the common denominator, Mike, was Deep Purple because in Deep Purple you, you have a a lot of there's there's there's, there's a big space for impl- improvisation. You can stamp your own. You can be expressive. Um, you can do your own thing within them within the structure of them songs. You know, so that was a turn on for us. We said, right, yeah, we can do that. You know, we can be ourselves every night. We can jam in the middle of them. Okay, you keep the the songs. You can't change them dogmatically different. You got to keep them, you know, so that people will recognize them and people wanted to hear purple and we got paid. So it gave us a chance to develop, but we didn't uh, emphasize it would turn out like this, <laughs> turn away in pace and uh, with uh, a very good record company, Metalville, and on our third uh, original album, you know. So it, it was, uh, yeah, crazy, man, crazy. Sure. And when, you know, when you were doing the Deep Purple thing, I mean, you didn't go old school. You said, hey, you know what, we're going to concentrate on a different era of the band, which a lot of people wouldn't have done at that time. Well, exactly what I was saying. We didn't want to go in. Uh, everybody was doing Richie Blackmore and, and yeah, Richie's amazing and is great fun to play. But we needed to come in at a completely different angle that nobody else was doing. So Perpendicular was, was a good idea because I say, OK, we're going to do Purple tribute but we don't want to be like the other tributes we, we want to be ourselves we don't want to copy so i i woke up one october um in the middle of the night and i had this perpendicular and i said it to the lads and i, I told them why and they said yeah it's cool it's brilliant yeah it's, it's a it's a little it's a it's a different stamp on it you know and um and we always tried to be ourselves, man, you know. And I think, you know, Mike, that's why Ian is so relaxed and he he tours with us because he wouldn't be with, with people that, that are copying himself. And, you know, I don't think so. You know, me knowing him a long time, I think he's fairly comfortable with us. He's, he knows that we, we hardly talk about music. You know, we talk about other stuff in general, life in general, and he's totally relaxed. He's a good pal, you know, so... I think that was a factor as well. He knew we weren't dressing up like them or copying them or 
yeah so that that was very important true uh, you know it's a new record human mechanic i think you i mean you know the last two records were amazing but i think you really found your groove with this record i think it shows like where the band has come over the last 10 years even though it's been like what four or five years since the last record came out but you know COVID hit in between and that was a hard time for everybody yeah that was a nightmare we but you know what mike and i've been saying this in all the interviews i'm doing it, it was a blessing it was a blessing for us just to take that little bit of time off because it, it gave us time to sit down and say right well where are we going with this? Who wants to be on board? Who's going to bring us to the next level? You know, after all these years, we just don't want to sit there and just just play every night. And then next minute in retires and then we have to start back at the beginning again or not the beginning. But you know what I'm getting at. But, you know, um, so we needed to um, make important decisions. What label, what lineup is going to who we're going to keep. Um, when we're going to release because we couldn't release in COVID because it, it, it wouldn't make any sense not to be able to do a promotional tour because yeah it's just a waste of time isn't it you're, you, you're putting an album out and you can't promote it and it just it'll just drop and I don't think the label probably would have either if they're going to invest so much money in, in, involved in the project so uh, the COVID thing did <clears throat> um, it didn't help but it did it sounds paradoxical but it, it gave us time because normally we work, we'd be working a lot on the road so um, it was, what was it, for four or five, five years it was. My, yeah, I wasn't pleased about it because I, I wanted an album to come out uh, in 2019, actually. And then 2020, we got off the Scandinavian tour. The shit started with the COVID, you know, and we had some songs were nearly ready. We had to, but in that time as well, we added an instrumental. We polished the sound up a little bit. We said, right, we need to get 10 nice songs that sit really nice and neat together dynamically. And uh, to keep it interesting for the listener, we got a nice punchy sound from the drums and a nice warm uh, mix, which I have to congratulate my co-colleague Herb on guitar. He did all the engineering and, and the mastering plant. They did a fantastic job. So, yeah, very pleased with it. Very pleased. It's a step up from the other albums, of course. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great sound of the record. You know, passing through the instrumental is such a solid song. And it's kind of rare for a singer to say, let's put an instrumental on a record because the singer wants to be on every song. Wait, what, sorry, say that again, Mike. I didn't get that. I was saying passing through is instrumental on, on the album. And it's rare for a singer to encourage the band to write instrumentals because, you know, the singers want to be on every song. Yeah, well, you know, as you get older, you, you, you kind of, you know, it's the same with Herb. He's not a guitar player that wants to be in the forefront. And none of us actually do. We're just a, we're a good team. You know, we, we do what's right for the song. If you hear a song, you say, you know, you, you don't need to say instrumental now. It just doesn't need to, no words need to be put on that. Or he'll come out sometime and say, you know what, this verse here doesn't need any guitar. It just needs a bit of that beautiful Hammond with the bass and your voice. I might do a little bit of picking. And that's great when you hear that from a guitar player, because normally they want to plaster guitars everywhere. You know, it's it's beyond farcical sometimes. And, you know, the thing with Herb is that he um, plays what's right for the song. And his solos is an extension of what the song of the mood of the song or whatever the lyrical content is. You know, so he's clever that way and he's mature that way. And um, that was another step up. That was another step up. But uh, we're both like that. We, we both um, bounce off each other and respect each other, what we're doing. 
Yeah. You know, people can read anything into any lyric that you give them. I mean, it may not be what you wrote it about or what it's for, but people just decipher things their own way, maybe because it means something personal to them or it's relevant to what's going on in their life. And I look at TV stars and internet freaks, and I could come up with 101 different scenarios about what that song is about. I mean, because it's so relevant to the world we live in today. Yeah. I mean, what were you thinking when you wrote that song? Well, I was thinking about the, the music business and the saturation involved in, in, in bands like us that work very hard. And then you get bands that don't hardly work at all. And they're posting stuff that making out that they're a massive fucking artists and they're not, you know, um, I, I always said, Mike, it's, it's not about how many clicks you have. It's about how many dollars you have in the bank, you know, and that's, yeah. <laughs> that's the end, you know, but you know, and it's not only for me, it's not only for uh, musicians, it, it's right across the board on Instagram and stuff. Don't get me, don't misunderstand me because there's some great, great stuff uh, on YouTube. There's some great uh, homemade channels and I think they're great, but there's a lot of fakery out there. Fakery is, I've just made that word up, have I? <laughs> Check that. It's a good one. I like that. <laughs> fakery, yeah. Not bakery, fakery. Um, there's just, yeah, that, and that's where I was getting at. I said, you know, everybody wants to be a TV star nowadays. Everybody wants to be a rock star nowadays, you know, and the saturation that it's causing, it, it's very damaging to the business. So that was from my side. But like what you said, you can take it from any, any, any side you want. Whoever buys that album, it's theirs, and it's theirs to enjoy, and they can interpret, interpret, interpret it, and interpret that there. I can't talk now. <laughs> <laughs> That's the beer, Mike. <laughs> yeah, but you know, but that, that it's true because you know. Going back to the 80s when I was a kid and I was going to shows and, you know, you'd run into people on the street and they were like, oh, I'm in this band. They were playing at this club and, you know, what a greatest band. We've got a, a million people that come to see us. And you go there, there's five people in the audience. Back yeah. then, it was easy to find those bands because there was no – but with social media today, it's so easy for bands to bullshit everybody and to convince yeah. people that they're more than they are. But, does, yeah. I mean, it, it has to take away from, like you said, the real bands like yourselves that are – you know, paying their dues and working hard to make something happen. Yeah. And the internet yeah. makes it so easy for anybody to even put out a record or release something today. There's no hard work involved anymore for a lot of bands. Well, that's why there is a little bit of annoyance because we do, we work all over Europe, as you, as a, you know, and hopefully we'll get stateside with the, with the new record. We'll talk about that in a minute. But um, the, uh, the thing is with that is that years ago, only good bands went on the road because there was, as you say, there was no internet. There was a phone call or a telegram or what, what you call a fax, the faxes back then. And uh, each band, you know, uh, back then was massive because that's how it worked. But nowadays you can get everybody talking to everybody. If somebody's fired out of a band, they're manipulating this, they're talking to promoters and they shouldn't be. It's just, that's the downside of it, Mike. You know, it's, 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 it's a nightmare. You know, but it's it's not only that, Mike. It's it's in it's in it's not only not only because of that. I I remember years ago, you'd meet a girl in a club at sat on Saturday. You know, you go out on a Saturday night with your buddies. You know, and you'd have a drink, yep. and you know, you'd meet this great girl. You'd have a dance. Uh, if you're lucky, a bit more. <laughs> but no, <laughs> uh, you know, you'd say to her, "Look, it, uh, I'll meet you here next Saturday um, by that poster over there." Or, or that pillar over there in the club or whatever. And, and she'd say, yeah, and you'd be excited the whole week. You'd build on the whole week. Nowadays, you can't do that. You'd walk out of the club, you'd already be texting her, and by the time you get home, you wouldn't want to meet her again or something would happen or you'd find out something that, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. There's no time anymore with the internet. You know, even with the, with the label, uh, they said, Rob, keep everything 
to a TikTok 90 seconds, 30 seconds. And I said, fuck me, that's nobody's any no, nobody's patience anymore. Nobody's patience anymore. That's the problem. That's a sad part. I mean, as never mind like the business part of it, but as a musician, do you find like now where you have to grab people's attention like in the first 30 seconds of a song to draw them in or they because they move on? I mean, I yeah. play a record start to finish and sometimes it takes a little longer to grow on me and yeah. sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. But I give it that chance because, you know, it's yeah. music. It, That's people right. today, like if they have one riff and if it doesn't draw them in, like, OK, this band's no good. It, it's It's horrible. It's just too much information. That's what it is. Yeah. Years ago, you had to go down. If you wanted a magazine, whether it be for clothes or whatever it was, or knitting or whatever, take your fancy, you had to go out and buy a magazine or watch it on the TV or hear it like what you did on the radio. But nowadays, people just have too much shoved in their face. The minute they open their eyes in the morning, they're scrolling, 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 scrolling. I'm guilty of it as well because you're looking up news and, and stuff, and it's just too much information. And uh, I was just saying to the lads there, we just finished a tour on in uh, Czech Republic. We did a week over there. And um, we were just saying after dinner, I said, everything, nobody's any patience anymore. And everything is, I think, we're t from a te um, technology point, we've just we've just gone crazy. We're just, just when you figure out something, like what I was saying at the start, they, they will find something else even more difficult to understand. And, you know, it's if you look at Facebook, it started off very easy. Now it's a fucking... It's like a labyrinth. It's just a maze. I don't even deal with it, you know. You know? That's true. Just drive you nuts, man. It's like in the, even in the supermarket where, you know, they keep changing shit around and you, you end up fucking hell. <laughs> the, sugar, the sugar was there last week. Now where is it? You got to go. Yeah. Home. I think they did it, it on purpose, man. <laughs> they are. It, it is a crazy world, but you know, music is supposed to be everybody's escape. That's where you go to get away from the pressures, yeah. from the anxiety, from the stress of the real world. You're supposed to just put that on. And, you know, and just let it take you to another place and another world. So well, when you're rushing your way through music, I mean, what joy really are you having then in life if music isn't the thing that's taking you there or where you have to go? Yeah, well, I say that for the audiences every every night. You know, they have a great time. We, we as I say, we never rehearse. It keeps it interesting for us. And even though the set list might be the same, um, it isn't, if you know what I'm saying. We improvise differently every night and we interact. I interact with the audience every night and so do the lads and we have a great time, and I always say to them, look, our job is done. If you can forget your problems for at least two hours that we're on the stage or whatever, um, if you can forget your problems just, just for that just for that amount of time, we've done our job. And that's true. And normally normally that's the case. They go home satisfied normally. Rob, I mean, what do you, today, I mean, what is the hardest part about keeping a band together, keeping three, four, five guys in a group together and happy playing with each other? I mean, well, that doesn't sound right, playing with each other, but I mean, you know, playing well, together in a band. How, what's the challenge instead of keeping a band together? It's a fucking nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. A nightmare, because I was asked a, an interview, a written interview, uh, I think it was a German magazine, or I'm not sure, but they asked what was my biggest roadblock, and musicians are. I don't know why they think they think everything fall, should fall on a, on a, on a platter for them. And also, everybody's dogmatic. They think, we think differently. Everybody thinks differently. And what they might want one day, they might want differently the next day. You know, and um, we had many guys coming in and out. I mean, I'm glad to say our original keyboard player, founding member, Christoph Kugler, is, is with us back again, full-time. You know, Ian was there from the start. <clears throat> not not full-time on the road, but he was there. He was doing the smaller tours. And as myself, so there's, there's three-fifths of the original band that's basically started in 2000, late 2007. 
So um, in the in the midst in the in, in the midway of all that, we had different players in, and my God, some of them. I mean, they would obviously they would blame me. They would say, "Oh, fucking, you know." Because I have obviously the last call. Because it's, it's first and foremost, uh, first and foremost, it's a business at the end of the day. They, mm-hmm. You know, people have to realize that. And if somebody's going to come in and wreck your business, you know, and I'm, I'm pretty, I'd like to say I'm pretty, pretty lenient. But um, if something's not right, Ian will come to me as well and say, "Well, he's not now," you know. And so I have to make the last call always. So I'm, the, I'm usually the baddie. But I mean, during the t- during the time uh, with Perpendicular. It, we had a nice little lineup and some people just, you get a guy that was constantly two hours late and you get angry with him. He would get angry at you. Has just a way you angry at me, <laughs> you know? So you got to lose people like that. Cause it's just totally unprofessional. You can't run a business with somebody like that. And then you got other people trying to steal the contacts and people that got fired. They start working with them and trying to do the same thing on the same circuit and shit like this, you know? And, it's it's awful, you know. I just said that I never had problems with labels, I never had problems with organizers, agents, or anything like that. But musicians are a nightmare. They're insatiable, oh. you know. If you give them, if you give them, if you give them X amount of money, they'll want more. If you if you increase that, they'll want more again, and it just goes on and on. I mean, but I'm very lucky with with, with the with Herb. Herb has always been there. He hasn't been announced in trouble since 2012. And you know, Christoph Kugler had to leave because he he had uh, he he was starting a family, but now the kids are kind of grown up, and he's come back again, which is brilliant. We're so happy to have him. He's he's an, he's only <laughs> stuff. He's only an ounce of trouble when he doesn't go to the bar on time, you know. <laughs> and and yeah, Ian, like- Ian is Ian. Ian is Ian. Ian is brilliant. He's a great pal. He, he always has a great story, and he's always so reliable. He you know he's so helpful as well. So. The lineup, of the, and obviously Nick, his son-in-law, who played with Jamiroquai, he's, he's a great pal of mine as well. So I'm hoping that this lineup can stay together for a long, long, long time. And I think it will because we've got level, level-headed guys here. We don't have any yeah. TV stars or internet freaks. <laughs> That's important. I mean, yeah, there is a comfortability factor in working with certain people over and over again because everybody knows each other's style and how they play and what they're about. But like, I remember the movie uh, with, with Tom Hanks. Uh, with the band, he played the with the Playtone Record Galaxy, that thing you do, and the band was like a one-hit wonder type band, and they were talking to an old jazz guy, a blues guy, and he was like, "Bands come and go, they just don't work." He goes, "You got to take care of yourself, you know, be a solo project, a one-man band." So yeah. I guess there is something to that because if you're the main guy and you have high guns around you, you're always going to write that ship, you're going to take it the way you want to. But then there are those times where you do need other people to, you know, to. Yeah, to yeah. pitch in and rely. So it's like a catch twenty-two. It is a catch twenty-two, and I, you're one of the first uh, DJs or interviewers that, that said that to me. It's awful. Many times, a couple of years, I was so unhappy with the band, and it's awful because people, you know, they don't want to help, and then if you're asking them, they think you're being a bully and stuff. But sometimes, you know, it's like a football team. You might you might snap at somebody, but we're all on the same fucking team here. Well, we all want the same end product. At least that's what I what I thought. So. You know, that's why we had to make all these changes. And you don't know yourself. You don't know what a person's like unless you go touring with them. You can interview them all till the fucking cows come home. You just don't know who they are until you, okay, if they've got a good reputation, blah, 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 you hit, then you can get lucky. But mainly, we weren't always lucky. So you'd end up with somebody that might be a bad egg. You know, there was a look at the draw, you know. And... Um, it nearly ended a couple of times because of one or two bad eggs, you know, but 
and that would, I mean, I would have continued. But like what you said, you just have to then make decisions for the band. You got to say, right, I've got to keep this on the on the on the path that it's on, and nobody's bigger than the band. It doesn't matter who it is, you know. And um, that 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 was imperative, you know. And I'll continue to do that. I will definitely continue to do that. At the start, uh, you know, I wanted. Um, Oh, we would have been about two or three years. I gave everybody a chance. We'd all do the management together. And that's a fucking nightmare. You know, you got five guys with different opinions. And a perfect example is, you know, when I started to take control, because I had to, if, if I hadn't, if I hadn't have taken control uh, as in uh, for the business um, side of it, um, it would have, it, we would probably wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be here because the, I give you an example, a festival one day called, and I needed everybody to give it the okay. And by the time everybody was hemming and hawing and then trying to make a decision, some wouldn't answer their mail. So you, and then the festival's gone. You know, so you throw yeah. money down the toilet. You know, so I said, right, that's it. I'm going to make a decision. If somebody's not available, I'm getting a sub. I don't give a shit. And you have to do stuff like that. It's not nice. It's never nice. But that's what I had to basically put up with. And it does. There's a lot of weight on the shoulders all the time. You know, but uh, but generally myself and Ian will we'll make the decisions at the moment. And uh, we made some decisions for the human mechanic. And I think it's the right one because we've got great, great, great feedback for the whole thing. So, yeah, uh, it, it is an amazing album. Absolutely yeah. amazing. Right. Start yeah. to finish. Cheers, man. Appreciate that. Well, you know, how are things in Europe right now? I mean, I know things have been picking up all over the country and all over the world. Again, everybody's out playing and doing shows and the tours are happening. Some are getting canceled because members are coming down with COVID. This yeah. isn't going away. It's never going to change. We have to just live with it and move on. But yeah. do you see things getting better over there now where you can start booking more and more stuff and, and having to be reliable enough to go out and tour with it? Um, well, we had a German, a load of German dates this year pulled, pulled and put into... 2023 and that was annoying a bit and the promoter said well it's still people scared to go out we, we can definitely get much more ticket sales if we just prolong it a little bit more into 2023 i wasn't pleased about it but because we never like to cancel we you know even if, if one of us are ill you know we, we understand people make arrangements they get babysitters they have to take trains or some in some cases uh, planes to, to come and see us you know and uh, it's never nice to say, oh, we just we cancel it. It's usually a, a completely a complete last resort from the band's uh, uh, point of view. So um, hopefully it's going to pick up. I the Czech Republic uh, tour was basically sold out. It was it, that was brilliant. You know, we just we just did that. So there's no reason every why everywhere else shouldn't be. You know, it, we've always done very well in Germany and France and Scandinavia. And so I'm hoping that it will just you know. As you say, we got to live with it. We can't, you know, it's just going to be like a, a bad flu. And there's certain yeah. people that don't get it. I mean, fingers crossed. I mean, I don't want to say anything. I don't want to jinx. I didn't get it yet. Ian didn't get it yet. Herb didn't get it yet. Um, I think Stoff had it. Stoff had it. And um, I don't think, I think Stoff is the only, Christoph, our keyboard player, was the only one that had it a while ago. So, but other than that, it's all good. But, you know, if somebody gets struck, struck down with it, it's it's difficult, you know. Yeah, I know. And what are the chances if you get into the U.S. maybe next year? Is it a possibility? Because I know, I mean, right now, never mind COVID, I think the economy is even in worse shape. I mean, you know, the inflation, things are getting harder. I see a lot of bands in the U.S. trying to go over to Europe. I mean, and these are pretty well-known larger bands. And yeah. they're like, we got to cancel because the expenses is just out of, as far as out of control. We can't make it affordable. 
Well, yeah, we noticed that uh, when, when we did the, um, we did it, we had two Danish dates and we realized that the price of, of fuel was off the charts. It was ridiculous. It was nearly three times of what we normally pay, pay you know, and uh, yeah, it is difficult at the, at the moment, but we got to go through it. You know, you can't just say you can't give up. You know, we've come so far, you know, and, and, and you'd hope that world leaders, you know, their heads are so far up their asses. It's, it's <laughs> a, you know, it's unbelievable that they can even breathe. You know, it's, it's awful. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're just wrecking the normal guys' livelihoods. You know, families that just want to go and work nine to five or whatever it is, take their, save up their money, you know, take their family on a, on a vacation or whatever like that. And they're just fucking wrecking it for everybody. You know, just these ideologists and crazy fuckers in charge. You know, it's it's sad. It's really sad, you know, because we're the ones that, that kind of suffer. But, I mean, we've got to go through it. We've got to see how it develops. We've got to just go forward as, as as best one can really. yeah that's all you can do i mean what's next for the band i mean metalville the new Riker human cag uh, 23rd i believe is the official release date even though people can hear a lot of songs now i mean so where do you go after this now what's the next step for promoting the record well getting back to the last question um we had about 15 to 22 dates in a in the u.s in canada north america and east coast uh for last year but it got delayed because Deep Purple had some work over there and Ian obviously they get preference over us obviously because of Ian in stature so um, we're working again with Metalville they have an agent over there I think it's TKA or something like that and they're working to, to, to put us over there for a month probably around well I would say next September I would like to say I, I'm just waiting on the okay from Ian and stuff like that and then we can plan plan ahead uh, that'd be great because we the first time over there you know it'll be fantastic and um you know getting to the the question you just asked me well we're gonna we're starting off in on the on the 16th of we as i said we just did a week in czech republic and we got one gig on the 13th in czech republic in bruno and then we're starting again on the 16th of november uh in france near paris i think it is and we go through france and up through germany in december and we're off for Christmas, and then we're up in Sweden then for a week. And um, April, I'm expecting a Bulgarian dates. I'm expecting a lot of German dates again. So that's what it's at at the moment. And I know that we'll start doing the follow-up. We'll start writing for the follow-up uh, probably next month. Or when we get together, we, we have to talk about that. But we're already collecting ideas um live we always collect uh, when we're on stage we, we jam a lot and we can get we, we always put down ideas that would work live so we take little jams that we do and keep them and develop songs out of them because that's it's good to to play uh stuff that ian kind of wants to play and has already kind of had the idea for it in a live setting you know what i'm saying so but uh, that's about where we're at at the moment but um we want to continue of course you know We'll continue to tour as much as possible. We try and reach as many countries as we can. And um, we're looking forward to promoting, obviously, this album first, but uh, we'll be definitely writing another one. I can't wait. And as much as I'm looking forward to a new record right now, The Human Mechanic is going to tie me over till the next year. And, you know, Robbie, I'm not going to keep you any longer. I'm going to play some songs when we get on the live show this weekend. And I can't wait till next September. Hopefully it'll happen. And you guys will be here in the U.S. because I would love to see you guys live. And I know yeah. you'll be in New York because every band comes to New York. <laughs> yeah, uh, You can't come here without playing in New York. 
There's Irish bars there, isn't it? There's a lot of Irish bars, and I'll make sure I take it to the best one. Oh, that'd be brilliant, Mike. I'd love to, man. We'd have a good, we'd have a good laugh. I know that. We absolutely will. Well, Robbie, it was great talking to you today. Human Mechanics, September 23rd, Metalville. I can't wait for the rest of the people to hear this recommend. They're going to be blown away by what you guys created. Appreciate it. Absolutely overwhelmed. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Thank you, my friend. Take care, and I'll see you next year.
Alright, brand new Perpendicular. I absolutely love these guys. TV stars and internet freaks. Alright, we're going to get to Rob Thorne from Sacred Oath in about five minutes or so. So how about we jump into a Sacred Oath song. I'll give my voice a little bit more of a rest. And then we'll get the interview with Rob right after that. And i got a whole bunch of new music still to get to tonight. And some more classics. Then we'll wrap it up here. Alrighty, let me see. How about we do uh, Shadow Out of Time. Here you go.
ended. Man, how great is that? Sacred Oath, Shadow Out of Time. We're going to wait a couple of minutes for Rob to call in before we jump into another song and then I have to kind of cut it off to get the interview going. Uh, but Kurt Van Hoof and Metal Church said that they have a new lead singer. Uh, I guess they're going to announce it pretty soon. Uh, the last time I spoke with Kurt was uh, 2015. It was right before uh, Mike Howe rejoined the band. I mean, he'd already agreed to come back. It was already in works, but... When I spoke to Kurt, he said that if anything happened and Mike Howe was out of the band, that he would just end Metal Church. He wouldn't go on anymore because I guess even he was tired of, you know, the constant changing of singers over the years. Uh, but, you know, Mike killed himself. He committed suicide. He didn't, like, break up or leave the band or they didn't part ways. So maybe that's why Kurt decided to keep it going. So who knows? Is there going to be a, you know, will there be the Ronnie Monroe hat trick? Will Ronnie Monroe come back for the third time? I mean, these are the vicious rumors right now. I don't see that happening. Uh, are they going to go like a completely unknown singer? Or are they going to look for somebody that's known? And you know, it kind of never works out when you get somebody else that's from another band or that's well-known already. It just doesn't jive a lot of times. So I think he's going to go with somebody unknown. It would be pretty cool if he actually went with William McKay, who was with the band like in 1980, even before David Wayne. And I think it was Mike Murphy was the other guy. I think both of them came in one after the other in the very early stages of the band. I, I believe McKay... Uh, Sang with them for 2001 and 2002, maybe 2003. He joined. Nothing was recorded, as far as I know. There were no albums out at that time, but he did come back into the band uh, in between the singers that they were having a problem with back then. Uh, so, I mean, this was like he was in the band originally in the pre-Griffin days. So, it would be pretty cool maybe if they got him back in the band because he is known from Griffin, but you know, it's not the biggest or most popular band. It is for us underground guys, but not for other people. So. That wouldn't be bad. I like to hear that. It was, I think it would sound pretty cool. So who knows? I guess pretty soon they're going to announce who the new singer is, and we'll get Kurt back on the show, and we'll talk to him all about that. All right, we'll wait another minute or so for Rob to call in. Uh, we'll get this interview going. Not much happening in the metal news. I, you know, last week we had a lot of technical problems on the show. It was the first time in a long time that things just went wrong one after the other. But I was able to splice the two halves of the show together, and I did upload them. So what you do here is everything but the intro, because I just couldn't get it on. All right, I believe we got Rob on the line right now. Let's connect him. Rob, this is Mike. You're on air. How are you? Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. I have to apologize. I've been sick the last few days, so I'm kind of hoarse and stuffy. So you got to forgive me. Oh, aren't we all, dude? Aren't we all? Yeah. Plus, getting through the Brooklyn accent is kind of hard itself, too. <laughs> yeah, well, no, it's okay. I understand Brooklyn fine. Uh, listen, Rob, <laughs> big fan of the band going back to when I got the first demo tape, you know, back in like 85. And I've been with you guys since then. And when you put it back together some years ago, I was so happy. And I've never seen a band that has such a short existence when you think about it with just the one record in the beginning stages of the band that's been so active over the last 20 years. Yeah, how do you even explain that? It's crazy. <laughs> you go back to the first demo? I was a big tape trader in the early 80s, and I had a couple of friends in Connecticut, and uh, girl Roberta Powers, I'll never forget, and she sent me a copy of that demo with Ferryman's Lamb and Battle Cry and Prophecy, and I was a fan after that. I stood with wow. you guys all those years. That is just crazy. Yeah, that's the very, very beginning. That was... Uh... We recorded that in the back of a music store. Wow. Back then, and, you know, that was the only that was the only studio, that was the only game in town in the Danbury area, which it was a a music store called Danbury Electronic Music. And in the back, they had a, a tiny little room and a little uh, 
at the time where it was a cutting edge like digital recorder actually that recorded wow. onto VHS tapes, but this is way, obviously, way before ADAT. And they wanted to try it out, and we went in and we did those three songs in a couple of days, and you know, that was my first experience ever recording. And the band was, God, so new at that point, like only a few months old. I'd only actually even been playing guitar, I think, for less than six months. At the wow. Time. But we were young, you know. I think I was, I think I was either fifteen or sixteen when we did that demo, and, uh, and so that was just boy. But once we had done that, Mike, everything, you know, I, I knew, you know, everything started to come into focus for Sacred Oath, and pretty quickly after that, we went in and did the Shadow Out of Time. Do you have that one? I have that one too. That was the demo that came out after that. <laughs> yeah, and that one we actually went into a real studio in. Wallingford, Connecticut, and we actually, that was when we started our whole relationship with Emma, um, producing us, and David Brizzo, who was the live sound engineer at the time with uh, Faith's Warning, and we had become friendly with Faith's Warning, and uh, really good friends with, you know, Dave, and we had asked him to come in and produce that demo, which was a lot of fun, and he ended up staying on for Crystal Vision. That was, you know, when you think about it, like I said, you guys were teenagers, probably in high school at that time, but you had such a developed oh, yeah. sound. I mean, for, for a bunch of kids that just got together, like I said, you were only playing guitar maybe half a year. How did you develop yeah. such a distinct sound that, that early on? <laughs> we listened to a lot of music, man. Yeah. A lot of music. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, you figure, God, by 13, <clears throat> 13 or 14, I was really, really, really hooked into you know, what well, well, at the time was heavy music, you know, for a kid that young, you know, Back in Black had come out and it was like, wow, that guy sounds sinister, you know, yeah. and Ozzy had Blizzard of Oz and Dyer's a Madman out. And, and so that's what got me hooked in there. And my God, by the time Sacred Oath got together, you know, at that point it was Merciful Fate and Metallica and, you know, and Megadeth had just come out with Killing Is My Business. And it was, it was an, an exciting time, you know? So you were just in, you were all the way in, you know, Mike, we were in the beginning days of Sacred Oath. Well, we still are, but, but then it was like all in, you know, 24 hours a day working, just being with the band, doing our thing, trying to figure out who we were, you know? Well, you definitely did that. And, you know, I know when a Crystal Vision came out, it was around 87, I want to say, if I remember the exact year. As I get older, things start to get a little less clearer to me. No, the you know, it's funny because 87, it, it, people are confused on the date with that record because we signed with Mercenary in 87, and the release date was published to be 87. And it ended up coming out something like the first week of January 88. So it, it's right on that cup. Yeah, so it was the beginning of that year. And I remember the yeah. stories from years ago that I, I guess you had nothing but trouble with that label, and it was kind of the be-old end-all for the band, uh, when actually when you signed with that label, because I guess that kind of like just tore the band apart, everything that happened around that time. And being kids, I mean, you know, being so young, I mean, you had no idea of the business part of the music business, which, you know, which it is. And that I'm sure that really worked a lot of havoc on the band at the time. Well, that was that is exactly why... You know, we hit we hit some rough waters, and we just the answer for us was to just forget it. You know, because we were so young, Mike. That was the thing. I mean, first of all, you're talking about a bunch of kids still in high school, 
who all of a sudden find themselves recording an album with a, with a label deal and, and we're thinking, you know, in our minds, we didn't have enough experience at that point to have any idea that it was going to be anything but smooth sailing and rock stardom from here on out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so because we were young and idealistic and we didn't have that experience yet and it was just... You know, there was a lot of frustration with the label because we didn't know that the label was already struggling financially before they even had, I think, ten albums out. You know, and yeah. and so we weren't we weren't aware of what their problems were, and uh, and we but we did know that we were like in the middle of a big fight between the label and the studio over them getting paid. And of course, when you're 17 years old, that's not a fun place to be. You got this little the studio owner threatening to like, you know, burn your master tapes you just recorded. And then when they finally put the record out, Mike, I mean, you can see now in the in the newer editions of the of a crystal vision that are out there, the the way the cover was always intended to look. But when they put that record out and they turned it all brown and put a big purple border around it and changed our logo and they did all this stuff to us without even mentioning it to us. We literally got like the record delivered. You know, it was like a spinal tap scene. It was like, you know, oh good, our record's here. And we opened it up and it was like just black, you know. It was like, what did they do? Like, and they cut a song off without telling us. And so we were so angry and bitter and we just were it, it, it just really worked on a morale you know I can only imagine, I'm like, sorry. you're so excited. I'm getting, that, no, I'm getting long. no, not at all. I love it. I mean, I love when you have these stories. Because I can imagine, like, you know, being a kid, you get your first record out, you open up that box, like I said, it's Spinal Tap. They were looking for the dog in the glove, and it was a black album, yeah. which Metallica took yeah, years later and made a million dollars off, millions of dollars off of doing that. But, yeah, I mean, well, you know, you expect for that. that exact reason. Yeah, <laughs> and it has to be heartbreaking and disappointing. And when, you know, when you think about it, when from the time the band started, like, you know, in 84 until the album came out in 87 in the very beginning I mean I don't know if anybody ever thought that they could actually make it or make it big you know playing heavy metal it wasn't until like Metallica you know Ride the Lightning came in where I think bands started realizing hey you know what we got a shot of really becoming big and being arena racks and stuff like that was this something you thought about at that young age or was it more like hey you know you just want to be in a band and get up on stage and meet girls and play and have a good time well I never got in a band to meet girls because that was not the kind of music we were playing. I mean, you know, I mean, it didn't, the, the girls didn't clue into heavier music until the hair metal thing completely exploded, yep. which ultimately ended up being the, the fall of the Roman Empire for heavy metal. <laughs> but, <laughs> but until then, it was, you know, it was greasy, pimple-faced teenager guys wanting to jump into the mosh pit. So that was really our focus. And, and you know, I, so it really was always about the music for us. And, and come on, anybody who tells you that they don't have, you know, a piece of them that fantasizes about the band breaking it big, it would be lying because, I mean, you get pulled into this, you know, as a young kid, you hear, you know, I can remember, first of all, my first concert when I was 13 is that my uncle and, and took me and my friend to see Def Leppard Pyromania. I was 13 years old. And that was the first time I'd been in an arena like that, you know, with like 10,000 people, you know, watching Crocus, Mark Sirachi saying, yeah. you know, Headhunter. And I was like, oh my God. 
this is what I want to do. You know, I don't care. I don't care if it's just in my basement or it's in an arena. I know I want to do this, you know. And then, uh, and so you, 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 the more you get into it, the more you find yourself dedicating every every waking moment to it. And then, and then you find out that well, maybe you're not going to be as big as Judas Priest or Def Leppard. <laughs> and then you ask yourself. Well, how much do I really love this? And I guess apparently I love it that much because here I am, 53 years old, almost 40 years later, Mike. Almost 40 years later. I know. It it goes by real quick. And I was was disappointed (laughs) when the band broke up because, like I said, I was such a big fan. And it had to be, I want to say, maybe 10 years later that I come across Soundscape and now I'm Discovery. And that album just blew me away. The same with Grave New World. I mean, you guys took like Yes and hyped it up to the to the next level. I mean, that was just... Oh, yeah. Well, you really did hear that stuff, didn't you? Oh, yeah. I love those two records. I mean, they were like... <laughs> I mean, they, I mean, you know, progressive metal came along and people got into it. This was on a... To me, this was on a whole other level. The name Soundscape described it perfectly because it was like Soundscapes with progressive music, rock, metal mixed together. It was just an unbelievable... You know, those two albums just... I still have until today. Oh, I, I love I love that you have you know soundscape and that you actually really know soundscape because that that everything that you say is is what we set out to do. You know, we were really into progressive music. I was wanting to not find myself pigeonholed in any way into writing for any particular style. You know, and and it's true. I was obsessed at the time with yes. Kansas, <clears throat> and uh, you know, and I, I got to tell you, the Dream Theater's success at the time in the early '90s was like, wow, this is yeah. pretty cool. You can really do something. You can really do something like this with a you know a heavier tint to it, and and that was what Soundscape was all about. But I'll tell you, the biggest struggle for Soundscape was that it was so difficult to describe what we were doing, so that we would play. You know, we would play. Uh, progressive metal festivals and people would look at us and go wow well they're not all progressive metal really and then we would play prog rock festivals and they'd be like well these guys are kind of (laughs) heavy so we yeah i don't know we just we had a hard time fitting in but we did make a couple of records that i'm proud of it does run the gamut but you know it's something that you just have to sit down and listen to i mean you know i was going to play age of wonder before he came up i'm like that's half my show so i couldn't couldn't." (laughs) are you kidding (laughs) that's like 14 15 minutes long i was like yeah maybe we'll close out with that at the end of the night uh you you know know you know what it's true and you and you could tell right then and there was that was when i was deepest into my creating only for myself period <laughs> because <laughs> when you're writing when you're writing 15 minute long songs you're really just in your own world having a great time playing with yourself <laughs> and and that's what we were doing in soundscape it was four guys just uh just creating exactly like it says soundscapes just yeah. entire entire you know, epic monstrosities that went on forever and ever. And uh, it was fun to play in them, that was for sure. <laughs> but isn't it great that you can get lost in a song like that where, you know, you don't feel like there's any boundaries? Because a lot of musicians say, you know what, we got to keep it at three to four minutes if we're going to get radio play. And, you know, maybe we'll lose people, especially today, you lose people's attention if like two minutes of a song. But 
Something like that really lets you as an artist and as a musician really express yourself and just escape it to a whole nother world. And that's where I go when I put those records on. Like, I just zone out. I'm like, man, you know, it's like getting high without getting high. Yeah. And I've never gotten high, so I don't know. But well, <laughs> it's just like escaping. Well, well it, it, it's true. But, you know, I, as I, you know, at the time, you know, I used to get, uh, you know, I had a chip on my shoulder that people didn't have the attention span or time to sit down and dedicate themselves to listening to a 15 minute song. But as I've gotten older, I realize that's, you know, uh, that's asking a lot of people nowadays. It really is. I mean, you know that people don't have ice. It's amazing. I see kids literally can't even get through a two minute song before they're sure. switching to the next song when they're listening to like their playlist. So, it asks a lot of dedication from the listener to really, you know, kind of invest themselves in a song as almost as much as the artist. But, but, God, do I appreciate it when someone does. I mean, you know, you're making my whole night telling me how much you've listened to those records that you've actually sat there and gotten through all of Age of Wonder. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're two solid <laughs> records. They really are. But, you know, when you move, that, that went on for maybe 10, 12 years or so. I mean, uh, I know because the second record came out maybe almost 10 years after the first record, but I remember bouncing around on the internet one day and I say, A Crystal Revision. I'm like, what the hell is that? And then I read, I'm like, holy cow, they went and re-recorded A, a Crystal Vision. And that was the beginning yeah. of the, the Sacred Oath coming back. And, I mean, how did that come about? I mean, I hearing the well, stories I about A Crystal have. Vision, I could see, like, how you were disappointed. Was this, like, a little bit of revenge to, like, get it out again the way you wanted it? Well, uh- well, no, I'll tell you. You, you mean you want to know about how that revision record actually came together and why? Yeah, the, yeah, the whole I revision mean, thing, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, I'll tell you, there wasn't really a vision behind that. It was to have everything to do with what we were just talking about, which was Soundscape. I mean, Soundscape in the mid-90s, late-90s was visible because we were so active on the East Coast. And uh, Dennis Gulby, you know Dennis Gulby, who had Sentinel Steel Records? Yes, yes. Okay. So Dennis, because of Soundscape, you know, having their head out of the water, he found me and uh, expressed that he was, you know, interested in reissuing A Crystal Vision and that he was a big fan of Sacred Oak. And it was funny because I was so deep in we actually we when he contacted me discovery was out and we were just getting into the studio to record grave new world and i don't know if you're aware of this but at the same time i was also putting out solo albums so in 1998 i had we were touring promoting discovery i had just gone we'd just gone in to start recording grave new world also I had put out a solo album, which was a whole rock opera based on Shakespeare's Othello that I just finished in the studio and put out. And Dennis Gulby called me and said that he wanted to reissue A Crystal Vision, and we couldn't find any master tapes anywhere. So there was discussion about recording a couple of bonus tracks, like The Invocation in the End, which actually appeared on the edition that he put out. Are you familiar with that? Yes. Okay, so... But when we got together to do that, it was the first time Sacred Oath had been together in the same room in more than 10 years, or about 10 years, actually. And we were having such a good time just as friends being together again, reminiscing that, you know, when we rolled tape, we were like, well, let's just blow through the whole record. I mean, my God, it's so much fun playing these songs. So 
Dennis put out, ultimately, he put out the reissue, and he put four tracks on as bonus tracks. But then ultimately I said, God, you know, the whole thing is pretty fun to listen to. It's not, it's not a great recording, but it, the band is definitely on fire. I mean, sonically, but the band is just like firing pretty hard. Yeah. So I was like, we should just put, we'll just put that out since we know Darkness Visible. This was before Darkness Visible was coming out. So we had it in the can for about eight years, actually. And when we knew Darkness Visible was going to come out, I said, let's pop that revision out there and just see if anybody's going to, you know, just to get the waves moving before Darkness Visible comes out so people start talking about Sacred Oath again. And it kind of worked, you know, because, I mean, some people hated revision. Some people really loved it. But then everybody seemed to like Darkness Visible, which was nice, you know? Oh, absolutely. You know, because most people think that was the first record with the original lineup again, you know, back together. But yeah, you and Kenny have been together forever. I mean, you guys have always been playing, you know, uh, he's been the one constant by your side. You've been together more than most married couples have been, been together when you think about it. You tell us it's true. <laughs> but yeah, it, although he didn't play, he, we didn't play that whole time that I was doing Soundscape, but um, but Kenny has been the constant in Sacred Oath. And I, and, you know, I don't know, a lot of people, well, actually, a lot, I'm going to say most people don't know this, that there was a time period in 2010 that Kenny had a severe back injury right after World on Fire came out, and we ended up doing some touring, and we had to have a drummer fill in. And, uh, and that, was, whew, that was a big, big thing for me, because after we did that, I really knew, you know, deep in my heart, I was like, you know what, if Kenny's not in this, I really don't want to do it, you know? It just wasn't, it just wasn't the same without having Kenny in the project, because I just felt kind of like it was me carrying, you know, waving a flag, carrying a bunch of newer guys, you know? Because this was back in 2010 at the time. And I had a meeting with Kenny, and I said, I, I, I don't want to do this without you, and he, he kind of just really took his back rehabilitation super seriously and you know it's been great ever since I'm glad when, when you did decide to get the band back together was it difficult getting everybody on board did you have like kind of you know pull a lake here and there to make it happen was everybody willing to go and give it a shot well it always depends on which era you know which album are you talking about all around the crystal <laughs> revision talking- ever when you, you try to get the four members of the lineup back together again Oh my God! For the, right then, after ten years, for the very first time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was crazy. Uh, you know, and what? Well, and the truth, you know, the truth be told, Mike, Glenn Cruciani is not on that album. I didn't know that. Did you know? Yeah, Glenn Cruciani's not on that album. Yeah, that's Todd Rose from Soundscape playing Glenn Cruciani's lead work. So what happened was, is we we flew Pete out from Chicago to my studio in Danbury at the time. And Kenny, you know, was living, I think, around Danbury at the time, maybe just over in New York somewhere. But Glenn was still out on the West Coast where we had been, but we'd, we'd come back to work, you know, in the New York area, and Glenn stayed out there. And Glenn was unable to come do that recording. And we were really only planning to do a couple of bonus tracks, really, yeah. Mike. So it was like, okay, well, whatever, you know. I so I did all the rhythm. That's all me playing rhythm on New Vision and Pete playing bass. And, and that was wild because, you know, things didn't end 
beautifully in 1988 and there was a lot of drama and people were upset and so that was really the first time that Pete and I got back in a room together and Kenny too and it was it was intense but awesome everyone was happy that we had done it and in fact it really motivated Pete to go off and do his own thing in the Chicago area with his band Low 12 for like another 10 or 15 years you know because he had kind of just been completely out of it so it was a good experience. But Glenn was on Doctors Visible, and was there any talk after that of keeping it going, or did you know that was going to be probably the only record with that lineup? No, oh, and I'm so glad Glenn was on Darkness Visible, because Glenn, again, no, Glenn, again, is a huge part of the magic, you know, that, that we feel when we play, you know, and every time, and we try to get Glenn to make guest appearances here and there. He's even on Return of the Dragon uh, on one solo. But, um, the thing with for Glenn was that he just at the time had too many things going on in his personal life to be able to commit to any kind of touring that we anticipated doing. Like for Darkness Visible, we went to Europe and there was just no way Glenn was going to be able to be available for that, you know. So we made the decision to hire Billy because Billy was available. And um, and Billy ended up that turned into a big gig for him because he came and he did the tour and then he did the self-titled album, and we and he's on his very first recording was the live album that we did in Germany, and then uh, he did the self-titled and he did World on Fire, and he did uh, Raven Song and Twelve Bells and he's yeah and then he even did Return of the Dragon but he didn't do Fallen. You know that Fallen, by the way, is Glenn, Pete, Kenny, and I, and that's it. That's a true reunion album right there. You there? Hey Rob, you there? You there, Mike? Yeah, I think yeah, we, yeah. We, yeah, we had a little drop there. The connection. I was, I was saying, I said, uh, you consider the Fallen to be more of the true, you know, classic lineup reunion record than Darkness Visible. I'm sorry, say, say that again. Uh, you were saying that to you, Fallen was like the true reunion record to you, even more so than Darkness, which you know really was the first time you were all back together. No, 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 no. I, I only say that because you know, here's the other thing about Darkness Visible is Pete was battling uh, cancer at the time. Oh, okay. And, and Pete, had, Pete, yeah, Pete had cancer and has been cancer-free, thank God, for my God, whatever it's been, 15 years. But he was, um, because of the medication and treatments that he was on, he was losing complete feeling in both of his hands. So we were halfway through Darkness Visible, but Pete only appeared, I think, on six, five or six of the songs on Darkness Visible, and Lou Liotta had to come in and play the remaining songs on yeah. And he also played with us for a while. But, yeah, Pete was having, you know, health problems with, uh, in his battle against cancer, and, and he would, got to the point where he was unable to play. And, he, you know, it was with his blessing, because he was like, hey, I want, this is a great record. You know, he wrote many of the songs on it, and uh, he just wanted it to get out there, and so that's what happened. So Fallen, Pete was able to play through the entire album, which is great. But but you're right, Darkness really is a, it's a reunion album for sure. Yeah, well, you know, when you think about your rap, in, the, in Dark- the true '80s style, in the absolutely. True 80s style. 
Yeah. Well, you know, Robert, when you think about all your output since that record came out, like, you, I mean, you just named almost all the albums, Sacred Oath, World on Fire, Fallen, Raven Song, Twelve Bells, and then last year's Return of the Dragon. I mean, it's been literally a year, maybe every other year that you've had new music. I mean, have all these songs been just sitting in the can since the 80s, waiting to come back out again? No. Or are you just that busy and active as far as songwriting goes? No, isn't that crazy? Um, you know, the only... You know, Darkness Visible, though, most of those songs on Darkness Visible were sitting in the can, not having had them recorded, but they were in my head. Or they were on rehearsal tapes. And it's funny because Darkness Visible, what's remarkable about that album and why I love it so much is half of the songs on Darkness Visible were written before we even recorded A Crystal Vision. And they got, and they were bumped because we thought the songs, you know, we wanted to record the most exciting, newest songs we were pumped about for Crystal Vision at the time. But are you kidding me? Unholy Man, Battle Cry, Queen of the Night, uh, Prophecy, you know that from the first demo. Those songs were all written way before Crystal Vision was written and recorded, right? But then you've got the, the songs that were written after Crystal Vision, like Darkness Visible, Words Upon the Stone, Death is Inevitable, uh, Calm Before the Storm, those songs were newer songs. So it's a great hybrid, that album. Super, super early, both, and then where we were right as we broke up, you know? Then you have a couple of new, then you have a couple of songs that had been in, you know, in writing stages that weren't recorded that made it onto later records, like Lurking Fear, Pete, that's on Fallen, Pete had written that um, what's another one that's on Fallen that, that had been... Oh, uh, Dream Death. Glenn had written that uh, in 1988. We got that on Fallen. But there's not a lot of other stuff that was like... Yeah, we wrote that before. All of the self-titled, that was all brand new material. And I just was so... You know, I was having so much fun writing for Secret Oath, Mike. It's... uh. It's something that comes, that style is just so natural to me. It's so easy to me. Um, like when I say easy, I mean, I just, you know, it's funny because Kenny will be like, oh, Rob, when are you going to start writing? And then I'll call him two weeks later and go, okay, I wrote the whole record. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, it's like, um, it's just, I sit down and um, it comes, it just comes out of my head very quickly, um, which is, fun for me you know I don't, yeah like, i don't do this because i want to sweat and strain and, and agonize i do this because it's so enjoyable and it's like a therapy for me you know what i mean if we don't we don't play once you know if we don't play enough i start to get a little irritable yeah i can imagine because my next question was going to be like when you did decide you know we're going to do sacred oath again because after soundscape and, and the solo stuff did you find did you find like you had to kind of get back into that that mind frame of you know this is sacred oh this is who we are this is what we sound like but obviously not because it's such a big part of you that you just automatically know where you have to go with it yeah well yeah well what the beautiful thing is is that when you've always been uh at the center of it you don't really have to question what your role is in it you just say well I'll just do what I've always done and that will just be what Sacred Oath is you know it's not like I'm trying to fit into anything whereas with Soundscape we were I was really trying to 
stretch, you know, like, and when I was a little bit out of my comfort zone in that soundscape, I was playing keyboards, you know, I wasn't playing guitar in that band. And so I was really having to say, well, what is my, okay, I'm sort of driving this band too, but I'm, I'm in a weird place. It's not exactly my comfort zone. And we're really trying to stretch our imaginations. Whereas with Sacred Oath, it's just like, here, this is what I think. Bam, done, song, great. So, you know, it fits into, it's easy for me, you know? And the minute you get Kenny and I in a room together, we barely have to rehearse. I mean, and I, I'm not even, I'm not even exaggerating, Mike. Like when we did the self-titled record, we barely rehearsed that album. Kenny and I. I mean, Kenny, Kenny and I just think so alike musically. I'll play a riff; he knows exactly what to do to it, and literally, an hour later, it could be down on tape and done. And he, and it's just that easy. So that was very liberating after having been in soundscape and having to work so hard in that band. Well, I, I can imagine, you know, when you, when you think about all the records that have come out, you know, you're kind of behind the board on everything. You're, you're, you're engineering it, you're producing it, you have Angel Thor music, you're releasing your own records. Was this something that you found had to be necessary or you had to do because of the lessons you learned from Mercenary and, and the whole music business? Did you say, you know what, I kind of got to take control of my product, what I put out there, because then it all falls on me and it'll come out the way I want it to and I can't blame anybody else. Well, you know, Everything I do, I do because I'm curious about it and I get interested in it and then I get pulled into it and I enjoy doing it. You know, like there is a little element of being dissatisfied with how someone else might be doing it and then saying, I want to see if I can do it better. And that's definitely one of the reasons I got into, you know, producing because, you know, we we would go into the studio and we'd be under a time constraint and it'd be a whirlwind and you'd come out and you wouldn't always be thrilled with where the, the recordings ended up. And over the years, in those early days of Sacred Oath and then other things that I had done when I was out in L.A., I'd watch over the engineer's shoulder and, and I'd start to pick up and say, oh, I get this and I could do this and I could take my time and have it really be the way I want it to be. So that's how I got into that end of things. As far as the, the label and the distribution and the business side of things, when I when Sacred Oath got resurrected and at the time I was also busy in Soundscape, you're talking about when the internet sort of became, you know, accessible to yeah. all of us. <laughs> And there, I, I had actually, in four years of the time I was off from Sacred Earth, I'd gone to college, and at the time that I had just finished college, and I had just written this whole rock opera about Marilyn Monroe called America's Beautiful, and I was gonna, I was gonna try and get it produced on a stage, and I and the, I had all these things that I wanted to do right after I graduated, and the internet was there, and it was a new thing, and it was everybody was talking about how it was going to be a way to take more control over you know your rights of your music and your 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 say in how things went with the distribution of your music now that was true but i you know i had no idea because i was so young what a big job that was going to be and how much <laughs> what was really involved so i sure learned a lot and i over the years have found myself now in a position where i i get it and i know how to do things more efficiently but it was it was tough back then but I hung in with it because I 
was fascinated by it, and I wanted to see if I could make it work. It wasn't always easy, though. I can imagine. I mean, when you think about the band today compared to the 80s, I mean, do you feel like there's, there's no pressure on you now? Because back then, maybe, you you know, you had goals and ideas and dreams and stuff that you wanted to make happen or accomplish, where today, like, you know what, I'm just having a great time. I mean, last year, Return of the Dragon comes out, and to me, the album flew under the radar because it was in the middle of the pandemic, and, you know, the whole world was crazy, and I'm like, this record is amazing. And I just feel like it didn't get the attention it deserved because just there was so much else going on in the world for people to really pay attention to a lot of other things. Nah. I don't know. I, you could say that every record we've put out didn't get the attention it deserved, Mike. <laughs> I mean, you know, compared to 12 Bells or Raven Song, uh, Return of the Dragon did get some attention. You know, I mean, we definitely, we definitely worked harder than usual to draw attention to Return of the Dragon because we really had nothing else to do. We couldn't go out and play. So we set about, you know, conceptualizing and, and making these those lyric videos to put out and kind of was just play with, you know, self-releasing videos content and using trying to get involved with social media to call some awareness to the band that way. And in that sense, we kind of invested ourselves and there was a little pressure to kind of like make something, you know, to try and get some activity around it. But I don't know that we've ever felt enormous pressure to, to you know, for what? To, 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 you mean to like become overnight mega stars or something? Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Well, you know, how is Connecticut today for, for like the scene? Is there is there enough of a local scene to sustain you guys when you want to go out and just play a show? I remember in the eighties, I used to go to Brickenwood all the time. You know, from New York. Oh my God! You used to go to the Brickenwood. Brickenwood, yeah. I was in a band. I was in a hardcore band, and they used to play there all the time too. But there was another uh, club around the same you, area that I can't remember the name. Did you Toads? I think that was it. Toads. Did you ever see Sacred Oats at the Brickenwood? I don't remember if it's at the Brickwood, but I saw you at another club in Connecticut, I think. Wow. Yeah, we played the Brickwood. That was uh, we did a show at the Brickwood with a band called Machinery. And I think that might have been one of the very last Sacred Earth shows, actually. I'll try. I don't, I don't think it was that one. It might have been somewhere else, but I missed the show in Brooklyn right. two weeks ago. That's killing me with, with Attacker and Mean Street. I, oh, I, I had to work that night. I couldn't get out God, of work. You... You miss that? Yeah, I had to work. I'm I'm retiring in a couple of weeks. So I have to I have to work every night to get all my stuff done before I leave. And I, I had to, I missed that show. I was like, I wanted to see you guys. Attacker are great friends of mine. And Mean Street got back together. I know the singer got Can hurt. You even that, believe that? It yeah. was like it was like a mercenary records reunion. <laughs> yeah, when you think about it, that's all, right. <laughs> all, that's what it was. All you needed was Kick Axe and Primal Scream and the Goo Goo Dolls, and it would have been a complete mercenary. Oh bonanza. my god. Uh, that killed me to miss that show because I was like, oh my God, you know, Sacred Oath Attack of Mean Streak. I mean, holy cow. It was a, it was a crazy night, actually, because, um, you know, Tina, the lead singer of Mean Streak, had a terrible accident in yeah. the club and broke her arm. And it wasn't, and was spent the whole night in the ER, and the band had to get up and play instrumentally, which was kind of anticlimactic at the end of the night but you know I mean things happen you know it's tough but for us it was a very good night because I'll tell you what happened was we were slated to play for an hour uh, and right 
right in the middle between between attacker and mean street and uh god we're about to start rising from the grave which is going to be the last song of our set and we we're going to hand out a neck brace and the sound man comes running up on stage trying to get my attention and i'm like oh my god i'm like are you kidding me we're about to start the last song chill out <laughs> i think he's gonna harass <laughs> me right he's actually runs up and screams in my ear don't stop playing the lead singer for mean streaks in the hospital just keep playing <laughs> and so it was funny because i was the only and, and then he was like don't tell anyone don't say anything and so I'm like, okay, which I didn't even have, we were in the middle of a set. I didn't even have time to talk to the band. So I just kept calling out tracks. Yeah. I kept saying, you guys want to hear another one? All right, let's do Words Upon the Stone. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's do Battle Cry. All right, let's do Darkness Visible. And and like the guys, in, you know, I'm looking over at like Damiano and Kenny and they're like, what the hell are you doing? We're, you're gonna, we're way past an hour now. And I'm like, don't worry, just keep playing. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of it was kind of funny actually and then finally I just got so tired I said sorry we're done <laughs> I can't do anymore <laughs> yeah it must have been a great show you got anything else coming up uh, you know in the near future you know we don't have anything coming up in the near future yeah I mean it's you're talking about live performances yeah live yeah live I would love a new record but yeah. we just got one last year but then again you do next year well, I want to do more. Look, the last couple shows, you know, we did a, a mega show in Connecticut in May where we played almost all of Return of the Dragon and all of the Crystal Vision. And that was that was a great time for us. This one we did in Brooklyn, you know, that was just supposed to be Crystal Vision. So we did yeah. the whole Crystal Vision album, which requires, you know, like for us, it's like, I mean, Mike, we're not... 17 anymore so it's like okay we're gonna do crystal vision all right we gotta like we gotta get in shape gotta go for a jog gotta ride the bike gotta stay healthy <laughs> and i can't can't drink that fifth of jack daniels tonight because you gotta sing like you way high tomorrow <laughs> yeah. so it's like uh we've been focused on that but i would like to do some more shows where we get to focus on return of the dragon because we really enjoy playing those songs really enjoy especially you know we're having a great time with damiano added to the group <clears throat> he's so much fun to play with he has a great time up there he's a phenomenal player and we love the songs the way they turned out on return of the dragon and we're just wanting we want to enjoy those for a little bit before we hop back into the studio you know but we did it. make a live recording we did make some live recordings and uh, from these shows, and there's a chance that if we have nothing going on and I got get bored, then like, maybe I'll mix something and put something out. But, we, you know, we just did a live record in, what was it, 2019 for the $12 tour. So I'm not in a big hurry to put out another live record. But if it sits around for a couple of years, maybe we'll put some of those tracks out. That'd be good. What about a live video? I mean, a video's even relevant today because, you know, with YouTube, everybody puts everything up there anyway. But did you ever think about putting out a whole live a video show? He's talking about like a like a, a produced DVD yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, even with a documentary attached to it, you know, maybe like a behind the scenes type of thing of the whole history of the band. That would be pretty cool. Wouldn't that be fun? You know, yeah. I've actually been appro I've been approached by 
some people about doing a like a documentary about the band um and maybe there is still interest in that it really hasn't turned into anything it, it, it sort of came up over the pandemic and then we haven't discussed it much more since then but that would be fun and i would like to do a live concert um because i think that the band is exciting live and i think that that's why we have a couple live records out because when i hear the tracks i go wow the band is is fun to listen to you know live it's different um but but it hasn't come together for a video yet because in my mind i would want it to be done you know well and uh just the stars haven't lined up yet to get the right crew in there the right budget to get it done in the right venue you know yeah well, the, the Keep It True one would have been fantastic. I mean, you know, back in the early days, cause those are great shows, big festivals, and you got the live record from that too. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. We we did put out the. Uh, I have been, I've been getting this like old footage that we discovered of us playing. Like, you know, it's just VHS camera stuff. But that's the beauty of YouTube is that you can throw up old crappy recordings that someone made with a you know, VCR cam, VHS camera back in 1987 onto YouTube without having to like put too much into it. And people enjoy that stuff, you know, because they know that it's fan filmed and it's just kind of like low quality, but it is kind of neat to see some of those moments captured in time, you know? Oh, it's true. I mean, I had one of those big cameras back in the 80s. I look at some of the videos I took, and I'm like, I have a $79 cell phone right now that takes videos that are a million times better than that $1,000 camera I bought when I was a kid. Oh, yeah, right? I know, right? Yeah, it was like you were carrying around a toaster. Oh, I felt like I was filming an episode of I Love Lucy. Like, I had the 400-pound camera on my back, (laughs) dragging it around the clubs. (laughs) Yep, those were the days. Yeah, but it was great. Hey, but you know, Rob, I'm going to have to cut you off because you only got a little bit of time left in the show, and I could talk to you forever, but I do want to get on oh, Age of Wonder. Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna throw an Age of Wonder and help everybody. They're going to have to sit there for 15 minutes and oh, listen to God. it. <laughs> I want to get on a few more Sacred Oath songs. I'm going to throw that on to close out the show tonight, man, but I, I can't wait to see you. I, I, it kills me that I missed you in Brooklyn. I will catch you next time. My wife and I go to Connecticut. We go to, like, Wall of Connecticut every year for, like a, like, a long weekend, so I'm going to try to make the next trip out there when you guys are playing live because I know you're not that far from there, and hopefully I'll be able to see you guys in your hometown playing live again like it was back in the 80s. Yeah, yeah, I'll let you know for sure. That'll be fantastic. Well, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate, you know, I appreciate that you know so much about all the stuff that went on in the 90s because that's, for many people, that's a, 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 a black hole. <laughs> that's that's a truth. There was a lot, go, you know, but there was a lot going on, and uh, and in many ways, that there was a, a big part of the resurgence of Sacred Art for us. So it's exciting. It's true. You know, somebody said the other day, you know, uh, they're talking about the '90s and music, like you know, rock and metal didn't die in the '90s. We just stopped looking for the bands that were out there. And, you know, and that's kind of summed yeah. up the whole decade when I thought about it. I was like, you know what? You're right, because they thought it died, and they just gave up people, and they didn't look around. And there was a lot of great stuff out there, like Soundscape. Yeah, there really was, you know, but, and it was hard to find. Because of what, well, what happened was is it went from what we were into was mainstream to all of a sudden it went back underground, and people never got too lazy to look for it. And that's very true. Rob, I'm going to get on a couple of Sacred Oath and then I'm going to wrap it up here with Soundscape tonight. So it was great talking to you, my friend. I'm looking forward to a new record soon. 
Take care, Rob. Thanks, man. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's get on.
Alright, so back to back, Sacred Oath there, Queen of the Night, Empire's Fall. I could have talked to Ron forever, but I had to keep muting the microphone because I was coughing and sneezing. I just, you know, I got sick this week, I apologize. But we'll get Ron back on here again one day when the next record comes out. Alright, we're going to wrap things up here tonight. Uh, let me see here, there was a lot of new music I wanted to get to, we just didn't have the time. I'll do two more, uh, we'll do New Razor because I promise I would get that on. I'm going to play some Tempest, my old co-host Tommy Flang has been from the 80s. We'll play something off of one of the demos, and then we'll wrap it up here with Age of Wonder by Soundscape. Like I said, it's like a 13, 14 minute song, so uh, we'll close out the show with that. But I want to thank both of my guests for being on tonight's show, Robbie and Rob. It was a pleasure talking with you guys. Next week, Thane Rasmussen from Anvil Chorus will be our guest. Thane has his brand new solo project out, the Thane Rasmussen Project. And we also have Chris Gustafsson on from Trauma. So don't forget to tune in next Sunday when we kick off the month of October. It's Halloween month, my favorite time of the year. Plus, it's my birthday, which means I can finally retire after 35 years on my job, November 1st. So, it's a big month for me, and I'm looking forward to it. All right, how about we do a little Tempest, Unknown Task, off of the band's 84 demo, Live at the Gates of Babylon. Brand new Razor, Darkness Falls, and like I said, Soundscape, Age of Wonder. You're not going to hear me back on after this, because I'm going to give my throat a rest. So, have a great week, everybody. I will see you next Sunday. Take care.
Next stop, Staten Island. All aboard for Krispy Kreme, home of the original glaze. Kipasa's Crystal Rosas, Staten Island is opening New York City's 14th Krispy Kreme shop. Search for that hot light, because when it's on, that means a free original glazed donut for you. Cancer knows no boundaries, doesn't care about zip codes, income, age. But neither do we. As New York's most experienced cancer team, Northwell brings life-saving care to all with our network of nationally recognized hospitals and specialists. Because boundaries shouldn't exist when it comes to defeating cancer and raising health for every neighborhood, for every community, for you. Visit northwell.edu slash saving lives. Northwell Cancer Institute. Raise health. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.